Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. From hacking into voter rolls to fake social media accounts and bots, cyber criminals tried hard to influence the 2016 election. Now we're less than a year away from the next big election. So is the system more secure than it was three years ago? What are social media companies and election officials doing to shore up our defenses? And what exactly do we have to fear from cyber attacks anyway? David Sanger is the New York Times national security correspondent, and his new book is The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. He begins by explaining what's been going on behind the scenes to protect our elections. Well, there's good news and bad news out here. The good news is that it's not that our radar was off in 2016. We hadn't even built a radar in 2016 for many of these things. We had no concept, astoundingly obvious as it seems now about how vulnerable all of this is, that a foreign power that had done this in Ukraine and other places in the world uh, would attempt to try this in the United States. Why didn't anyone think about that? People didn't think about it. Because the one common element we've had to all of the major hacks that have hit the United States and all of the major hacks that the United States has engineered against Iran, North Korea, Russia, and we can talk about those later on because we obviously have a very, very active offensive program as well. The one thing they all have in common is that no one saw them coming. Our intelligence on uh, cyber so far, and the major cyber attacks, the attacks on Sony that North Korea did, on the casinos and the banks that Iran did, the Russian attacks on on the – or efforts to get into, not not actual attack yet, on the electric grid, they all have one thing in common, which is that uh, our intelligence uh, record is perfect, which is to say we've predicted absolutely none of them. And the same was true for the DNC, which was basically as wide open as Sony was uh, in 2014 to the North Koreans. And because Facebook thought that it understood how people might manipulate the system and discovered they had no idea how people might manipulate the system. So what are we worried about in 2020? The things that we haven't seen yet. So let me give you a couple of examples. Do you remember this summer we saw these ransomware attacks in Texas and elsewhere? Baltimore, of course, got hit. Atlanta was hit before that. And in, and, and this is where they would uh, – hackers would steal data and then – this Ransomware is where hackers would go in and lock up a system's ah, data, right? Okay. right? Mm-hmm. And then say, send me 15 Bitcoin to this address, this anonymous spot, and I'll unlock your data for you. And maybe they would and maybe they wouldn't. What was interesting about the Texas attacks was that they were on small towns. They were mostly criminal. We don't really think there was a big state-on-state operation there. But they would attack these small towns that had no IT, no information technology professionals, no cybersecurity professionals. Okay, So think about the election. You've got registration systems that are run by small cities and towns that don't spend very much money on this stuff. Supposing you lock that up a day or two before the election and, Jen, you show up to vote and they say, well, we have no way of seeing if you're registered. So you've got people in the U.S. government who are running around trying to get the states and cities to think about how they're going to print all of this out in you know, old-fashioned paper 
before you come in so that you've got a way to keep the election from being disrupted. That's not the only way you could disrupt it. If you triggered selective power outages in some precincts, particularly in swing states, nobody's going to have people coming into a voting system where you can't turn the lights on and where you can't plug the voting machines in, right? That's a pretty simple way. And remember, the Constitution requires when the presidential vote must be. So it's not as if you can say, well, that's okay. We're going to do a do-over next Tuesday. You call cyber the perfect weapon. Why is it perfect? The things that make cyber so effective as a weapon are, first, it's dirt cheap. Okay, so if the North Koreans can afford to do it, you got to figure just about anybody can afford to do it. Second, it's still pretty stealthy. It's pretty hard to figure out exactly who has attacked you. Think of how long it took for us to figure out that it was the Internet Research Agency in uh, St. Petersburg, uh, Russia, that was doing those Facebook attacks. Third thing uh, about it is that it's very hard to deter. All the things we learned about deterrence in the nuclear age that kept us from blowing ourselves up and the Soviet Union up and so forth don't actually apply in the cyber world. There are simply too many players. Not many people had nuclear weapons. They belonged only to states. Cyber can be done by criminal groups. It can be done by terrorist groups. They can be done by states. They can be done by criminals who are working for the states on a freelance basis. And they can be done by teenagers. These groups do not sign treaties. So the old concept of arms control that we eventually came to in uh, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s doesn't really apply here. So people are struggling to figure out what do you do to deter. And that's why you've seen the United States become much more aggressive in the past year and a half, the NSA in particular, against Russian, Iranian and other targets. We also have a very active offense when it comes to to cyber weaponry. How is the U.S. deploying cyber as a weapon right now? Most people don't recognize that U.S. Cyber Command, which started as a tiny little sub-element of the U.S. government 10, 12 years ago, is now a full-fledged command. It is you know, right up there with Central Command, which conducts our wars in – uh, the Middle East. It's up there with Northern Command, uh, with the Indo-Pacific Command based out in Hawaii. It has developed a fairly large number, a big size arsenal of weapons. And it relies heavily on the NSA, the National Security Agency, which is its civilian counterpart, but which has a lot of this expertise. The NSA, of course, started by doing just electronic intercepts, but now has become the center of this. And they're all based up in Fort Meade, although Cyber Command has deployed around the world. So what have we seen happen? In August of 2018, President Trump signed a still-classified order that gives Cyber Command Um, much more latitude to go into foreign networks and begin to put what we call implants into systems so that you can see what somebody else is doing, but you could also weaponize those and use them for attack. The U.S. did shut down the Internet Research Agency around the midterm elections last November. They sent messages to the cell phones of individual intelligence agents in Russia and hackers who were believed to have been involved in 2016, saying, we know where you live. They've gone into the ISIS computer systems, not very successfully, interestingly enough. 
They've gone into North Korea's missile program and for a while managed to help uh, send a lot of those missiles into the ocean during tests. Eventually, the North Koreans caught on and figured it out. We've gone into the Iranian missile program. And in May of this year, we reported at the Times that the U.S. had put implants meant to be seen inside the Russian electric grid to say, you want to mess with us and put stuff in our electric grid? We can do the same with you. So this all sounds good. I called for it in the book. I said, you you can't just sit around and expect that people are going to stop doing this if you don't have an active program. What we haven't figured out yet is what's the escalation ladder? If we do X to a country, what do they do Y in return? We understand this in the kinetic world. It's different in the cyber world. That brings me back to the question of defense and how much of our inability to defend against these attacks has to do with the fact that so so much of the cyber I don't even know how to how to phrase it exactly but a lot of it is held by private companies you mentioned Facebook the Twitter banks. the banks right so how the much utility, of it right. is is how so, difficult does it make it so the answer to your question is about 85% of the activity going on on the internet in the United States is in private hands and you don't want to defend all of it the same way. We care a lot more about keeping the electric grid running and the cell phone network running and emergency communications running than we do about a lot of other things that you know are fundamentally entertainment, right? So the first thing that we've seen the Department of Homeland Security do is sort of rewrite the rules about what's critical infrastructure. In 2016, the election system, the underpinning of our democracy – was not considered to be critical infrastructure. The Washington Monument and the Jefferson Memorial were, but not the election system. The second thing that uh, we need to do is think about resilience because one way to deter attacks is to convince your at- the attacker that whatever you do, it's not likely to work. You might knock us offline for a while, but we'll be back up quickly. That's called deterrence by denial. Um, The third thing to do is make them fear you a little bit. And we've seen some rather clunky methods by the the Trump administration to do that. In the Nuclear Posture Review, the annual nuclear strategy or – sorry, once every four years nuclear strategy that the government turns out, it said if there is a massive attack on American infrastructure that is non-nuclear, that is to say a cyber attack by and large, we might respond with nuclear weapons. That's a big claim, and I'm not actually sure the Russians or anybody else actually believes it. So when I said we were struggling with coming up with the deterrence elements, that's a piece of it. And the last part is we haven't as a country decided what we're willing to sort of set as rules for the globe about what's off limits. And you and I could come up with a list, hospitals, nursing homes, whatever – But I'm not sure the American intelligence agencies are willing to go to the president and say, here are the limits we want other countries to respect and therefore we have to agree and declare we would never attack these things, including power grids. And, you know, the first question is what are you willing to give up? And since the U.S. government doesn't even want to discuss its capabilities, it's hard to have a discussion about what to give up. I mean, so it sounds like there's a real distance between – uh, the use of cyber attacks and ethical considerations uh, about 
what the employment <laughs> of those attacks really means. And and is part of that because there is this distance between the attack itself and the impact of the attack. If we're talking about an attack on an electrical grid, it almost sounds benign until you may look at what that looks like on the ground for the people who are experiencing it. That's absolutely right. And because we haven't experienced real cyber war so far, we've experienced sort of constant low-level cyber conflict. And I often tell people, we're kind of where we where the airplane was at the end of World War I. It had been used for tactical purposes but not strategically. By the end of World War II, boy, had it been used strategically, right? Part of our difficulty here is getting people to understand what the dangers are and that that danger is not necessarily the cyber Pearl Harbor that shuts off all of the electricity from Boston to Chicago. It's the low-level stuff that makes it hard to operate. It's changing data. If you got into the Pentagon's databases, you might try to go change the targeting of weapons, but it'd be a lot easier to get into the medical databases and just try to change everyone's blood type and imagine the damage you could do there. So part of it is identifying what is truly critical information. The U.S. has not been good at this, Jen. Do you remember the attack the Chinese did to steal all the data from the Office of Personnel Management? Hmm. That wasn't just a database. It was 22 million Americans who had applied for security clearances, and the amount of personal data about them was huge. But more importantly, it told the Chinese who was working on what projects, right? So all of a sudden, the CIA was canceling assignments to China because the data that was in there, they feared, would help the Chinese figure out who was coming in as a CIA agent, not as the second agricultural uh, secretary at the embassy. Well, you broke a story a few years back on the Stuxnet cyber attack that set back Iran's nuclear program. And you also write about Nitro Zeus. That's a project that could use cyber attacks to shut Iran down in the event of a war. U.S. defense and intelligence officials actually don't agree on the best way to develop and use these tools. Why is there still disagreement about what should be happening in this space? Well, partly I think there's disagreement because we haven't had much public discussion of it. And I know that sounds strange because obviously these are classified elements. But if you think back to the nuclear age, in the 50s, you had generals who wanted to go use nuclear weapons against the North Koreans during the Korean War and against uh, the Chinese and the Russians. But by the 80s, we all came to agree that we would only use nuclear weapons as a matter of national survival. In cyber, we've never had the equivalent debate. We have regarded these weapons as so secret and our capabilities as something we have to so protect that we haven't actually got people to think seriously about the ethical considerations, about the legal constraints. There are a lot of lawyers who work on this. You mentioned Stuxnet, the attack a decade ago on Iran's nuclear program. But it was interesting, built into the code, and one of the reasons we identified the code as American, as partly American, were expiration dates, that it would fall dead because lawyers had gotten through the code, American lawyers, and said, we don't want unexploded ordnance going off being used around the world. But the fact of the matter is we don't have agreement right now about how to go use it, and we don't even have agreement about who's responsible when we fail to protect these weapons. So the WannaCry attack that took out the British healthcare system was done by the North Koreans. 
The U.S. has gotten out and declared that. What they haven't told you is that it was done by the North Koreans with code that was stolen from the NSA and published by a group called Shadow Brokers that we believe to be Russians and then reformatted and used against our allies. Now, if that had been a missile that got shot against our allies, someone would have been court-martialed. But because it was a cyber weapon, no one took responsibility. Well, you've kept a close eye on national security in the U.S. for years. How would you characterize the Trump administration's strategy on national security and cybersecurity? Well, on cyber, you've got very good people trying to do a lot of different things. But in the protection arena, particularly for the election issues that we were discussing at the beginning of the show, the president will not engage. And he will not engage because he believes that any discussion of election security is designed to blame the Russians for the 2016 election and call into question his legitimacy. And so it was remarkable to all of us that one of the things playing in the Ukraine impeachment inquiry right now, the presidential impeachment inquiry over Ukraine, is that he was trying to peddle this very bizarre, long-ago discredited theory that the Ukrainians, not the Russians, were involved in the 2016 hack. Now, if the U.S. government believed that, then they should kill the indictment they issued, the Trump administration issued a year ago for 12 Russian intelligence agents for conducting that attack. I haven't seen the Justice Department pull that back and say, oh, we got this one wrong. Okay? But it's hard to get attention in the U.S. government focused from the top on a critical issue like election cybersecurity if the president won't lend his voice and his budgetary influence to that issue. And so you've seen one piece of legislation after another get tied up with Mitch McConnell not letting it come to the floor of the Senate because of this allergy to dealing with it inside the Trump administration. Well, quickly, just as we wrap up here, we individually are more connected than than ever. You know, we have laptops at home. We have phones that are connected to the cloud. After this discussion, frankly, I just want to go home and disconnect. (laughs) But what are the things we can do to protect ourselves? Well, the good news is that people are doing uh, more. I mean, you now get that six digit code back, Mm -hmm. you know, from your bank to make sure it's you and so forth. It's possible to defeat those. But a lot of the small cybersecurity things we're doing, changing passwords, that kind of two-factor authentication as they call it, that gets rid of 85 percent of the drive-by crime, okay? But it's not going to protect you against a state. And the key change in the past decade is that cyber has become the primary way that states compete and undercut each other. And the second big factor is the one you identified, that while we're getting better at cybersecurity, We are adding to our homes more web-connected devices, and each one of them, each one of them is another pathway in. And that's part of our vulnerability, that in cyber, the power goes to the least connected society attacking the most connected society, and we're the most connected. That's David Sanger, author of the new book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Now, over the next few days, the on-air broadcast of Reset may not come to you because of the impeachment inquiry hearings, but we will drop a podcast in your feed every day at 4. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.